Welcome to Building Optimal Radio. I'm Jared Gossett, owner and president of Gossett & Company in Austin. We build higher-end custom and spec homes, and this is a podcast to help fellow builders build a better business, learning not only from my victories and losses along the way, but also from some of the sharpest minds in the industry. I had the opportunity to join the Lowe's Pro Council Ambassador Program. To break that down for you, that basically means we are helping provide feedback and ideas to Lowe's executives. And we're also spreading the word about Lowe's programs that are specifically designed for pros. Now, my personal philosophy on brand partnerships is this. I will only work with a company if I already use and believe in their product or service. And in this case, I've been a customer and a fan of Lowe's for years. I've actually always preferred to shop there. So I'm excited to announce this partnership. And in the coming months, I'll be sharing more about what Lowe's is doing to help pros. And as always, thank y'all for supporting our podcast and our community of builders. If you're building spec homes, you, without a doubt, are going to encounter the question, should you pre-sell your homes? Everybody has a firm stance on this. I have had firm stances in both camps, and it's possibly the most complicated debate that I have had for years on end with my own team about the pros and the cons and the hows. So I want to visit a little bit on that because it's a very nuanced topic. And it's one that I think a lot of us see through probably pretty biased lenses, uh, including me. And the thing is, if you've been building for any amount of time, you've had stories, good and bad, probably on every outcome. In other words, Good and bad stories pre-selling, good and bad stories wait until the end. I have just in the last two weeks alone received one text from a friend and fellow builder who said, in all caps, no more pre-sales. I've also in that time heard a story from a guy who is getting completely hosed and this is almost a malicious type scenario where a very wealthy buyer came around, gave him what was a very, very high offer on uh, a luxury property that he's building. And anyway, very long story short, it turns out that all along this person had planned to use the intrinsically gray areas of code and of the contract to leverage and beat down this builder such that this guy is now in a lot of financial hurt, in all likelihood, a lawsuit, and what was at one point looking like it was going to be a very profitable project for him now end up may being a huge financial loss. I have my own horror story from early, early in my days. This was about 10 years ago, and maybe over at this point, and, um, 
the most expensive house that we had done at that point. It was like our prize, our jewel, and we sold it to a very high net worth individual. And this person, knowing what I now know, exhibited all of the red flags. And I talked about some of these red flags a few episodes back, red flags to look out for with clients. But this person brought in an attorney, which should be sending off alarms. Not so much just an attorney, but um, an attorney who just took the contract to task and redlined the hell out of it. So that was red flag number one. Number two, wanted to make a ton of changes. Uh, We actually allowed those changes to happen after contract signing a terrible rookie mistake on our end. And then um, this person, actually, we didn't learn this until afterwards, which is just some of the unknowns of dealing with uh, pre-sale. But this person, after we signed, started requesting all communication to go through fax. And it just, things just got weirder and more um, conspiratorial, probably on both sides of the equation after this contract had signed. And we luckily got out and it was fine, but we did probably lose forty or $50,000 in uh, attorney's fees to guide us through that process. And also in just extra holding costs because it took so long to get to the finish line with this buyer. So there are obviously horror stories. There are also great things that can come from pre-selling too, right? I mean, the whole idea is risk management, is guarding against the unknown. For us, and probably for you if you're building spec homes, your investors and your banks love to see pre-sales. It makes them feel more secure in their uh, in their investments with you, such that they'll perhaps extend you more investments and more loans before that one closes. So you can lever up your business, you can scale up more. There are obvious benefits to this. And that's why I think it's so appealing. And why in some cases, and in many cases, it can be the right thing to do. You know, and to add to the list of obvious cons, if the economy has a downturn, you'd like to think that this contract is going to protect you. And it should. On paper, it should. So let's not discount that. If you get a strong contract with a good deposit from a buyer, and they're a qualified buyer, and the economy goes down, then ideally you have sold, let's use financial terms for a second, a I'm sorry, you haven't sold, you have purchased a put option. So you have reserved the right to sell this property at a given price. And in a downturn, um, that price would presumably be higher than the prevailing market at that point. So you would have won. You, you would have won. You would have protected your downside and come out okay. Whereas for those who didn't pre-sell in that same market, they could be in a much bigger world of hurt. Let's talk about the downsides. So the obvious downside are once you introduce a client into a project, you now have a lot more variables that are in the equation. Variables can equal extra time and extra money, a lot more meetings, a lot more handholding, a lot more overhead on your team's part. And that 
can often be worth it again because of the benefit that one receives from having that security with the pre-sale. Now, here is the interest, here's where the conversation gets really interesting. One, I think that if you are going to pre-sell, which by the way, full disclosure, my company does pre-sell. We have a, we take kind of a portfolio strategy where we don't pre-sell everything, but we'll pre-sell to ideally have about a ratio of 50% to 60% of our homes under construction sold at any given time. Now, there's a, by the way, there's no science to that. I wish there was. I wish I could sit here with you guys today and tell you there was some real uh, academic thought behind that, but there isn't. It For me, it's a little bit of kind of a gut instinct knowing kind of what the possible risk profiles are here and making my most educated guess. So now let's talk about some of the insidious things that can happen with pre-sales. In other words, those things that can go wrong that may not be as readily apparent because obviously we've got the client issues are the thing that are always talked about with pre-sales. But here are some of the other very real possibilities. Obviously, we are pre-selling to provide downside protection, correct? I don't think there's much reason to pre-sell beyond that. You are, like I said, buying a put option. If we're talking about some stock analogy, we're buying a put option, the right to, to sell at a given price. The assumption that is implicit in this entire argument is that that right will exist in the event that we want to exercise it, right? In the event that the market turns down, we are assuming that this buyer who remember in the game of real estate and building homes, we're all people, very emotional people. So you're going to have someone that's on the hook who is, you are now asking to quite possibly buy a home that is not worth what they have contracted for. So in one scenario, everyone's a a person of of honor and says, well, this is what I signed up for. So, okay, we're going to close at this price. It actually is probably not a real fair statement to bring up honor because that uh, may not be the mechanism of action here if something goes wrong. So in other words, yes, maybe you've got somebody, you've got a buyer who now is paying, let's just use round numbers, a million dollars for a house that's worth 900,000. So one of two things happen if we're looking at kind of a flow chart of what could happen here. So kind of level number one, does the person use that as leverage to try to come back and renegotiate you? So let's just say, no, they don't. Okay, good. We'll move on to level number two. In the very reasonable likelihood that they do, now your life just got a little bit more complicated. You can lean on the contract that may result in attorneys starting to discuss and negotiations from there and them threatening to not close. So that is, like I keep referencing, a very reasonable outcome when the market turns down. Let's continue. So regardless of what happens there, now we've got this kind of level two, this additional layer. Well, what if you have an agreement with the buyer, they're ready to close, but then the lender stops lending or uh, the lender says that they're no longer qualified for this amount of mortgage. So even if you've got this amazing client who says, listen, man, I'm going to close. Don't worry. Uh, We're in this together. And then their bank, because of the economic situation, changes their underwriting criteria. And now all of a sudden, this person 
can't get a loan or can't get the same amount of loan. Now what? That also is a very reasonable outcome in this situation. So now what are you going to do? You're going to ask somebody to close or you're going to try to force someone to close who just simply cannot get financing or a loan for it. Again, that's going to be something you're going to have to address in the moment. And the probable outcome from that is, no, they're not going to be able to close. So you go back now to your default. Okay, fine. They're not going to be able to close, but hopefully I got a really solid deposit. So, okay, good. So you got a deposit that will lessen the blow. So now maybe you had a hundred and, or let's just, let's say you've got a $75,000 deposit on a million dollar home. And uh, that's now worth 900,000. So ideally they would walk away and say, okay, you know, we can't perform on our end of the contract. You keep our 75,000. And now you have bridged a good part of this gap between market conditions and what you had expected to sell for. So that would be a positive outcome for you. Again, let's go back to the psychological reality of what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people who are putting up a lot of money who are emotional beings. I would say that probably the majority of people aren't going to just be completely fine with you walking away and keeping their deposit, even though you should have that in your contract. That should be like a black and white, you clear as day have the right to keep that deposit. All right. You should have that in your contract, but it doesn't mean that they're still not going to come back trying to claw some or all of that back. And even if you've got those rights and they bring in attorneys to try to negotiate and swing the situation in their favor to one degree or another, well, now you've still got problems. You have a property that is currently being litigated around. So uh, in a lot of situations, you probably won't have clean title to sell it. So now you're dealing with encumbrances on a property and a legal situation that could drag out for months or even years if it was to go eventually get litigated. Hopefully it would never get to that point. But the point is, even though you would have a very strong case, given your contract, time would be your enemy. Time to solve it and free up your property to do something else with it. That would be the enemy. So all that to say, I'm not trying to be pessimistic around the concept of pre-selling a home because again, I personally do it. I partake in that practice, all right? But I think we all need to be careful not to deceive ourselves about really how much protection that's providing and making sure that whatever we feel like is probably a truer assessment of that protection and of that benefit of pre-selling is really aligned with what our company is needing right now. There's this little cartoon that a few of y'all may have seen. It's floated around the internet. It's, I think it's really geared more towards like conspiratorial type memes and that kind of stuff. But there's this, there are these two lines, these two booths, and there's a guy sitting at one booth and he's got a banner above it saying convenient truths and there's a really long line of people waiting for that booth and then there is another booth with the guy there and a banner over it and oh this is not exact but it says something to the effect of like harsh reality or something like that and there's like one guy there and I really like that meme just not for any reason 
conspiratorial or anything to advance any sort of agenda, but more so just because I do think it paints a picture of the way that human cognition works. We tend to settle on the thing that's most comfortable, even if that might be a little deceiving. So it can feel comfortable to pre-sell and it has a place in your portfolio and in your strategy but let's not confuse it for something that it's not, for something more than it is. I really don't think that a lot of banks and lenders and investors understand that. If they did, I don't know if they would put as much emphasis as they do on pre-sales. Or if they did, then I think at a, at a bare minimum, they would want to see a lot more behind the curtains of what that pre-sale looks like. And actually, we can talk about that for a few minutes. So here are a few of the ways that we handle pre-sales so that I think it's A, more beneficial and B, less risky. Obvious thing to do is if you're going to pre-sell, you should have a clause in your contract that says builder reserves all rights or something like this. I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to play one here. So don't take this as legal advice, you can take this idea I'm sharing and and have your lawyer draft up this language, but language that is somehow to the effect of builder reserves 100% right to deny all changes after the contract is signed. You could even take it further and say just flat out, no changes will be allowed after the contract is signed, or better yet, no buyer initiated changes will be allowed that way you're still you're not cornering yourself into not being able to make a change due to material unavailability or code changes etc so um some language like that and then also beyond that the um explicit communication in your early commute in your early discussions, marketing material, all that stuff with your clients that says that same thing. In other words, don't just bury it as a line in a multi-page contract, but highlight it in your communications that this is your process. If you're pre-selling, you know, what we do with my company is we say, listen, we do not accept or allow changes after contract signed. That's not meant to be punitive. It's because we have investors and lenders on these projects who have time requirements and and we can't expose ourselves to additions or increases in those time and dollar budgets. We run our business very systematically and procedurally oriented and this helps everybody to a better outcome. We will say because we are selling very high-end homes and presumably someone who wants to spend $4 million on a home is going to want, is going to find maybe one or two things at a minimum that they want to change. So those things we will consider on a case by case basis in the preliminary discussions. And we'll give people an answer before we ever write up a contract. And we'll say yes to this, no to this. But we keep that list of yeses very short, by the way, just because we don't want to end up spending hours and hours redoing a home unless it's a unless it's a market that's going against us and we're and we have no leverage anymore but hopefully that's not the case so if we've got a little bit of leverage we just will not take much um, in the form of changes but those changes 
must happen in the preliminary discussions and they must be completely papered up in the contract. No discussions, no changes are left to occur after the contract is signed, period. No allowances, nothing like that. You are opening yourself up for problems. So that is the obvious thing. That is like, if you're going to do one thing, that's that should be it. But there are some other things you can do also. You can add language into your contract. Again, talk to an attorney about how to do this. That takes the appraisal risk and puts it on the buyer. So like I mentioned earlier, one of the things that can go wrong is the lender changes their underwriting requirement or perhaps the appraisal, the market has now turned down and the appraisal comes in low. And that, if you don't have language that specifically dictates that the buyer will cover those shortages, that the buyer is taking that appraisal risk, well, now you've got issues that are squarely on your shoulders as well. So language that protects you from that will be helpful. It's one layer of protection. Again, even if you get that, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have a lot of the problems that I was referencing a few minutes ago. But it's one prob- one potential problem less. So there's a little good in that. Now, something else you can do. Make sure you're using your own contract form. I know that the real estate commissions in every state have their own forms that can work. Those are almost certainly not going to be as favorable to you as your own contract form or one from your local builders association. So I would absolutely use your own form. Don't let the buyer or their attorney mark it up. If so, red flags abound. So be warned. That's something else you can do. And perhaps the last thing is for you to consider timing of the pre-sale. When do you really want to do it? You know, I don't have a great answer for this one. My team likes to wait longer than I do, and I can see some of the pros to that. Uh, I can also see the cons. So, you know, a lot of people will do it sometime around framing. My team likes to do it like after we've kind of uh, installed drywall and ideally put in cabinets and tile. Their thought is that at that point, there are fewer things that a buyer could ask to change. But again, if you're following my protocol of not allowing any sort of changes after the contract and minimizing them pre-contract, then that may not be entirely important anyway. And another thing on your timing, I mean, the sooner you pre-sell, then on one hand, you're capping or you're lessening the likelihood of a downturn. In other words, you're getting to that price before downturn. So you're reducing the probability that one happens during your project. On the other hand, and this is nothing immaterial, you also are signing yourself up for to get squeezed between inflationary situations such as what we're in right now. And so you could be signing yourself up to get squeezed on the costs um, and then you're capped on the purchase. So the longer you wait, the less likely you have that, the more you have allowed inflation to potentially factor through to the market as well. Anyway, there you go. So let's cap this episode with that. I think I've rambled on for long enough, but hopefully you walk away with a little bit more nuanced understanding of pre-sales. It's not as black and white as we often make it out to be. It'd be a good tool can also be something that isn't nearly as effective as we may think it is given improper execution of it and also given its natural risk profile. So wishing all of you successful sales, whether it 
be pre-sales or not. Until next episode, y'all be well.